1: Before we start, a very quick program note. This episode is part of a much longer series. To be sure you get the whole story, we recommend that you jump back and start from episode one. Also, we want to invite any of our thousands of listeners who still use Facebook to join our friendly show group, which currently only has a couple of hundred fun loving folks. Just search for the show's name. Finally, whether you do social media or not, please do drop us a line to tell us what you like or hate on the show. At the Paranoid Strain, that's all one word. At gmail.com. Okay, let's get going. Paranoid Strain Orchestra Get it.
2: Spill the beans. Who the fuck is this uh, John Birch guy?
3: Ted, walk us through it. John Birch was a Baptist missionary who was killed by the Chinese communists about 10 days after the end of World War II. It was a difficult time in 1954 when Robert started to write his book, The Life of John Birch. The Hiss case was over. That was no longer a way to garner support for the right. Robert Taft had died. McCarthy was in a downfall due to his alcoholism. So Welch tries to fill this vacuum. It was a conspiratorial thesis addressing who lost China. And at the center of it was John Birch. For Welch, Birch offered evidence of a massive conspiracy and a cover-up centered on the loss of China. And treason by high level American officials. Welch wrote that Birch was the first casualty of the Cold War. He ships out to China to evangelize. He wants to win souls to Christ. August 25th, 1945, Birch encounters uh, Chinese communist soldiers. He's ordered to disarm. Birch is not one to back down, and he was shot dead. The soldiers mutilated his face beyond recognition. A Chinese nationalist soldier who survived shared the tale.
2: Okay, sad story of a guy with messianic ideas who challenged the wrong Chinese soldiers at the wrong time. But why was he so important to Welch?
3: I still don't understand
1: why you're bothering me when Ted is standing right there. It's rude, Dana.
3: So Welch presented Birch as a victim of these two conspiracies. The first is calculated murder by the Chinese Communist Party. The second is cover-up by the State Department which Welch alleged sought to keep the sellout of China under wraps. The deep state was complicit, said Welch. Welch is arguing that had Birch lived, the world would be very different now. Shanghai kai would have defeated Mao. China would be a democratic republic. So Welch believed that every Westerner needed to know Birch's story. A- and all that was at stake was the, the survival of Western civilization.
1: Still, however strange Welch's elevation of Birch's importance to the post-war world was, he was right that the government had worked to minimize or cover up the circumstances of the young
3: missionary's death. At the core of it, the State Department really had plenty of reasons to keep quiet about the details of Birch's death. Chinese-American relations were precarious. The fact is, there's no deep state lurking in the bowels of the State Department. China was suffering the civil war between nationalists and communists, but the United States was technically an ally to both, and it was hardly interested in straining either relationship. A tragedy such as a soldier's death is just a minor detail. Birch was sort of a a pawn in the game of diplomacy at the particular time, but Robert never believed that. Welch
1: was absolutely convinced that if Birch's story was widely known by the American people, they would finally adopt Welch's anti-communist absolutism against the Chinese as well as the Soviets. The book came out in 1960, two years after he formally founded the society that would bear the anti-communist martyr's name.
2: But I'm assuming said book did not, in fact, bring the American people around to Welch's way of thinking?
1: It did not. But let's have Ted explain how the JBS actually came together in 1958.
3: Robert Welch ran for lieutenant governor in 1950. He came in second. He did rather well for a first time political candidate, but he was crestfallen after the loss and he began to establish what were called Welch campaign committees where he would go around Massachusetts and educate people about the rise of socialism. He saw Massachusetts as a perfect guinea pig for socialism for the rest of the country. It turns out that Welch would disband these organizations, but he was still interested in doing something with educational organizations. Eight years after he lost the lieutenant governor's race, he established the John Birch Society, which became the most successful anti-communist organization in the history of the United States. It's established in 1958. Welch talked over a weekend and all these titans of business came. They were men like William Greedy, former National Association of Manufacturers president. T. Coleman Andrews, the former IRS commissioner who opposed the income tax. Fred Koch was there, who was the president of Coke Island Oil and Refinery Company, which later became Coke Industries, among others. These men long believed that socialism threatened the body politic. Lenin's vision to seize the world, they believed, was to be achieved by the growth of the federal government. And this group thought that the communists were perpetrating violence and chaos, and Welch thought that common sense and smaller government could break the liberal consensus and produce a better world. They were loyal to Robert Welch. They revered his felicity with words, his articulation of a conspiracy, Most believed his assertion that the communists controlled or were on the verge of controlling the world. Robert spoke for 17 hours. He offered 10 predictions for the future. He said there's going to be greatly expanded government spending, higher taxes, unbalanced budgets, wild inflation, greatly increased socialistic controls, and a centralization of power in Washington. There were aspects of the society that mirrored the tactics of the communists. They would use organized fronts to spearhead political causes. They would engage in letter-writing campaigns. They would use monthly bulletins. Members would inform headquarters of local chapter activity throughout the nation. Early on, joiners were urged to read conservative books And dedicate some of their time during the week to going to their local libraries to study the communist conspiracy. They would hear lectures, they would read and share the JBS magazine American Opinion.
1: So, what made it both a unique and uniquely effective vessel for the furtherance of Welch's goals? The idea was to create a group that wasn't secret, like the Masons, the Rosicrucians, or the other groups we covered
2: exhaustively
1: last year. The JBS would not be secret, but rather anonymous.
2: Though Miller notes this distinction eluded many critics.
1: Another innovation was the idea of leveraging the tactics used by communists themselves to further the cause of limited government and anti-communism. For example, the JBS would create groups arranged around specific causes without foregrounding the involvement of the JBS itself. This is how, though at their peak in 1965 they boasted a maximum of 30,000 members, they were able to have such an outsized impact on everything from the 1964 Republican primary
2: where JBS activists helped ensure the nomination went to conservative Darling Goldwater, as covered in our Political Conspiracies shows.
1: To later efforts against abortion, the Equal Rights Amendment, and other causes.
3: You know, he would say that the John Birch Society is doing this when he's trying to get more support for the John Birch Society, but people pushing for lower tax relief in California, they don't know that they're engaged in some kind of a Birch front.
2: This was a particularly smart way to enhance her influence, Especially when your group would eventually become synonymous with right wing fringe lunacy.
1: Yeah, we should probably deal with the whole lunacy thing. first reason that Welch's nascent group drew the ire of mainstream America was that aforementioned letter about Dwight Eisenhower, which he had been privately circulating to hundreds of conservative readers for years by the time it became a scandal in 1960.
2: So what was so weird about this Eisenhower letter anyway? Like, Welch and co courted controversy. Why was whatever dipshit idea he had about Eisenhower such a big deal?
1: Well, the main problem was this quote.
2: My firm belief that Dwight Eisenhower
4: is a dedicated, Conscious agent of the communist conspiracy is based on an accumulation of detailed evidence so extensive and so palpable that it seems to me to put this conviction beyond any reasonable doubt.
2: Yeah, that doesn't sound great. No.
1: Of course, it sounds unhinged, and not just to you, me, and the Straniacs. It sounded unhinged to almost everyone who heard that phrase and wasn't already a JBS member or sympathizer.
3: It all began with a simple car ride in December of 1954. The conversation became quite serious because Welch suggested that Dwight Eisenhower was a communist. I mean, that's ridiculous. The man who planned D Day, the grandfatherly figure who was elected twice in the 1950s. And this surprised one of his listeners so much that this friend asked Welch if Welch would be willing to put the comments in the form of a letter that he could study. And Welch agreed. On his return to Boston, he began to write the letter. It started off 9,000 words. But the letter takes off. Everybody in anti-communist circles wants to see the thing. Welch said that the letter had evolved into over 200 pages within a short period of time. He still considered it a private, unfinished manuscript for limited confidential distribution. The problem is he sends it to thousands of people, and it began the biggest controversy in the history of the John Birch Society. He becomes associated with calling Dwight David Eisenhower a communist from then on. He sent one to William F. Buckley. Unlike Welch, Buckley never believed that domestic communists, as opposed to foreign ones, were a great threat to America's survival. Buckley thought that it made the right appear to be cracking up. It was a disagreement among friends. Buckley had lauded Welch before this incident. It would dissolve into a feud. It's a crossroads of the movement. Do we go Buckley's way, which came to be known as respectable conservatism? Or do we go to the conspiratorial conservatism of Welch? I mean, it's almost very similar to what we see today in the United States, the big rift between doubters of the 2020 election and those who embrace reality.
1: Welch insisted that because he had never actually formally published the book, he didn't feel the need to refine and edit his argument the way he would with his other books. Nobody bought this excuse. And in fact... Eisenhower is a dedicated conscious agent of the communist conspiracy was one of the two phrases that would permanently lodge in the public consciousness when it came to Welch and the Birchers. What was the other one? Why, the slogan you could read on the many billboards the society put up during the mid-60s. Impeach Earl Warren.
2: Ah, the chief justice whose Supreme Court oversaw a series of milestone decisions that expanded a variety of rights in the United States. What was it that the Birchers hated about the guy?
1: Pretty much everything. Here's a riveting excerpt from a 1964 JBS meeting where the true believers make their case.
5: You all know we've been working for quite some time on securing the impeachment of the Chief Justice, and there a are a variety of reasons for this. First of all, we firmly believe that he has violated his oath of office, office to protect, defend, and uphold the Constitution of the United States, and believe he has been doing quite the contrary. But more and more important and more serious uh, serious import is the fact that the Chief Justice has, has been the leading advocate. <clears throat> Uh, setting the stage for the current uh, uh, series of racial riots that are now rendering this country apart. Uh, in addition, the general tenor of the of the, the um, Supreme Court decisions, particularly since 1954 and above, have tended to uh, destroy the republic that our forefathers set up for us and convert it into a mobocracy. Now we didn't say it, but the communists themselves have publicly declared that one batch of decisions by the Warren-led Supreme Court have constituted the greatest victory. Uh, the Communist Party in the United States. Now, the other thing that uh, the court has done is to uh, take steps to remove uh, the spiritual foundation of our republic that is now unconstitutional for children, to recite prayers in our public school or to read from the Bible.
1: For Welch, the main issue was a series of decisions he saw as pro-communist.
3: Warren had overseen the Brown versus Board of Education decision, which would desegregate, by all deliberate speed, public schools in the United States. Welch would call that decision the most brazen and flagrant usurpation of power that has been seen in any major court in 300 years. And he would relay that there have been credible reports that Warren himself was made chief justice to assure that the decision came off according to schedule. Again, the conspiracy theorists conspiring. But the JBS's blue book, the primary foundational document didn't emphasize civil rights to a great degree. It observed only that the Kremlin was behind the civil rights revolution to divide the nation and embroil the country in civil war. Well, urged that the impeachment of Earl Warren would dramatize and crystallize the whole basic question of whether the United States remains the United States or it becomes transformed into a province of the worldwide Soviet system. It wasn't just about Brown versus Board of Education, argued Welch. Welch would cite the decisions in Pennsylvania v. Nelson. It upheld a state court decision which reversed the conviction of an American Communist Party member.
1: While there's no doubt Welch genuinely hated decisions he saw as helping the Connies, As you just heard, it's still hard to avoid a somewhat more cynical conclusion. The most singular and iconic decision the Warren Court issued was the landmark Brown v. Board of Education, which began the desegregation of U.S. schools, and which in turn effectively kicked off massive resistance from parents of kids in all white schools across the country, and was the beginning of the huge backlash against civil rights that continued for decades. When these people, who outnumbered dedicated Birchers by maybe hundreds to one, saw bercher funded Impeach Earl Warren billboards and join the crusade, they weren't thinking about the same things Welch was worried about. They wanted black kids to stay the fuck away from their kids' schools. And more importantly, Welch knew that's what they were focused on. In our conversation, Ted noted that to some extent, the impeachment movement, which was doomed to be completely ineffectual, as Welch knew, was designed to give JBS supporters a goal to aim at, regardless of how unattainable it was.
3: Welch said that the drive to impeach Warren was an effort to give members something, however futile, to accomplish. And it was a response to a whole host of things that, according to Welch, uh, Warren had done to protect communists in government. As the book
1: details, the just-doing-something aspect of being part of the society was a really important part of the appeal, especially to women coming to grips with the same modern domestic boredom that Betty Friedan identified in the feminist classic The Feminine Mystique. Just as millions of women poured their efforts into rectifying the gender inequalities of mid-century American life, those of a more conservative frame of mind joined the John Birch Society and poured their seemingly endless energies into, from their perspective, saving the free world. Miller quotes one woman who said,
4: I just don't have time for anything. I'm fighting communism three nights a week.
3: Betty Friedan said that there was a problem that has no name. Many housewives were lonely. Many people were going to their doctors and they were being subscribed. Mommy's little helpers. There was a significant amount of stress. This is the middle of the Cold War. As Michelle Nickerson has demonstrated, the conservative movement, especially for women, gave them an outlet. And so for women, who are becoming part of the John Birch Society and fighting communism every night, attending the films in their neighbors' living rooms, reading Robert Welch's books. This serves as the other side of the 60s. It's a different form of the feminist movement. It would be Phyllis Schlafly who would pursue this activity in later years in her anti ERA crusade, which Robert Welch was also involved in.
1: When they joined Welch's group, members received a ready-made answer to their generalized anxieties about the modern world, the direction of their country, and their place in it. The situation, as the Birch Society concluded, was a sort of all-purpose, illogical, yet straightforward syllogism.
2: Premise one.
1: The U.S. at the beginning of the Cold War was the unchallenged, unchallengeable, most powerful, most envied power in the world. We could do anything that we as a nation wanted, thanks to our unlimited influence over the other nations of the earth. Well,
2: that's ridiculous. What's Premise 2?
1: Premise 2 is, for one of another word, reality. The U.S., though it indeed assumed an unprecedented level of power and influence in the post-war period, was not actually able to do whatever it wanted on the world stage. From getting outmaneuvered by Stalin over the post-war status of Eastern Europe, to our blundering involvements in both wars like Korea and Vietnam, and our ham-fisted and often horrifying attempts at regime change throughout the Third World— The U.S. proved no more all-powerful than the British, the Romans, or any other imperial and influential nation had been at any point throughout history. Conclusion. For the Birchers, this reality was unacceptable. The U.S. was destined to remake the world in its image. So the only conclusion was America's blunders and losses could only be explained as treason by those acting inside the country itself.
3: Robert Welch shared a post-war belief in seemingly unlimited American capability. He went further than many liberal leaders and concluded that countries wanted to be like us. And if they didn't, it was our fault. For policymakers who realized that America was already maybe doing too much around the globe, from assassinations in Iran, South Vietnam, and Guatemala to covert wars, Welch's vision was downright dangerous. But like Welch, many Americans could reject the claim that the United States was doing its best, and they became some of his strongest followers. He didn't believe that there were errors in policymaking. There's no such thing as human fallibility. He liked detective stories. Everything had to fit that pattern in his head. He needed to see everything kind of connecting. Like, take the Bay of Pigs fiasco. He Couldn't see that as the mistake of a president who never served in an executive position and took the advice from his aides. He saw it as part of a communist conspiracy, and that's how it was. Stalemate in Korea? Berlin Wall
1: goes up? Cuba goes commie? It has to be the result of an enemy within. Traitors in the U.S. government. After all, quoting the book,
4: He believed that countries wanted to be like us follow our example. And if they didn't, it was our fault.
1: Malloy's book points out the centrality of a conspiratorial perspective to the
4: Bercher worldview. Events big and small, from the Cold War and the rise of the Civil Rights Movement to the smear campaign against the society itself, were seen more clearly through a conspiratorial lens, Berchers believed. Conspiracies explained the admonishment of General Walker, the assassination of John F. Kennedy, the Watts riots, and the inability of the United States to secure victory in the jungles of Vietnam. They made comprehensible, otherwise inexplicable reversals of fortune, such as the Bay of Pigs debacle or Barry Goldwater's disastrous election campaign of 1964. They accounted for and connected together such seemingly unrelated events as efforts to fluoridate the water supply, gun control legislation, and President Johnson's war on poverty, all examples of dangerous and malignant collectivism in Bircher's eyes. He also quotes a Bercher
1: novelist named Elizabeth Linington, who nicely brings the threads of women's role in post-war society, as well as the combined sense of purpose and paranoia that participating in the Welch worldview could engender, into one passage.
4: All these unaware people walking the streets, shopping, planning bridge club meetings, talking about where to go on vacation next summer, Linington writes, you want to scream at them because you know it's happening the enemy is here and now. We're far, far down the road to enslavement. Listen to me. Stop and listen. None of these little things could matter less, because if you don't listen and find out and do something about it, by next year or the year after or the year after that, you and your bridge club will be sharing quarters
2: in a concentration camp.
1: Now, I imagine that this whole worldview sounds pretty familiar.
2: You mean a group of people who are convinced that all that is good and holy in the U.S. is being stymied and ruined by a group of influential traitors in government and society? A sort of deeply embedded state that is seeking to ruin the nation's status as a beacon of freedom and democracy? A group that gets together and puzzles over the clues left behind by these traitors and does everything they can to alert their fellow countrymen to this problem through political action? No. That doesn't sound like QAnon at all. Why do you ask?
1: Exactly, and as the society's influence grew, particularly in certain ultra-conservative U.S. enclaves, it began to make headlines in the mainstream press. These were not positive headlines. Which brings us back around to the setting of one of our classic episodes, The City of Dallas in late 1963, where President Kennedy would soon meet an assassin's bullet. There was no love lost between President Kennedy and the Birchers on either side. Malloy quotes an interview Kennedy gave on the subject.
4: He said... Well, I don't think their judgments are based on accurate information of the kinds of challenges that we face. I think we face an extremely serious and intensified struggle with the Communists. But I am not sure that the John Birch Society is wrestling with the real problems which are created by the Communist advance around the world. Birchers and others, the President continued, should spend their time addressing the internal subversion that was going on in places like Vietnam and Laos, rather than concerning themselves with the loyalty of President Eisenhower, President Truman, Mrs. Roosevelt myself or someone else
1: this gives some important context it's not like kennedy and the other high government officials whom the birchers decried were all a bunch of chill hippies who wanted to just get along with the menacing ussr like coexist bro they were also obsessed with communism they just wanted to focus on the places outside the us where the communists actually you know were Getting back to Kennedy's fateful trip to the heart of birch country, though, it so happens there's an absolutely excellent book that covers the influence of JBS-style thinking on the citizens of Dallas at the time, the provocatively titled Nut Country by one, let me see here, Edward H. Miller.
2: You mean the same guy you've been interviewing all this time?
1: Yes. Shamefully, dear listeners, I must admit that I had read and annotated the entirety of his Dallas book, then read the Welch bio and then conducted the interview you're hearing throughout this section without ever realizing that the same man had written both books. I am what we call a doofus. Anyway, even though we've mentioned how crazy Dallas was during this period, Miller's book paints a far more detailed and shocking portrait of the conspiracy-riddled thinking that prevailed among many of its citizens. By the early 1960s, Dallas was a major power center for the JBS. The book's title comes from the story of an infamous Welcome Mr. Kennedy to Dallas newspaper ad posted on the day of the young president's fateful arrival by three members of JBS. The ad was anything but welcoming, attributing the city's success to conservative economic and business practices and accusing Jack of communist sympathies. Miller quotes Kennedy that morning, preparing for the day with his wife in their hotel room.
0: How can people say such things? Kennedy asked his wife, who was donning a new pink Chanel dress. We're heading into nut country today, he muttered. The book is equal parts trenchant analysis and
1: character studies of some of the goon squad comprising the ultra-right wing of Dallas at the time. For an example of the former, it does a great job of explaining how anti-communism led moderate, small-business Republicans of the Midwest and urban South
2: who you might assume wouldn't go along with all of this crazy anti commie talk
0: into something approaching birtherism. As one oil man observed, we all made money fast. We were interested in nothing else. Then this communist business burst upon us. We were going to lose what we had gained. But as interesting as
1: this material is, I know what you're here for. Batshit insanity. And the book's got a whole bunch. So here's a smattering. One of the richest and most influential Dallasites was H.L. Hunt,
0: who it describes this way. Hunt was an eccentric who had nursed at his mother's breast till age seven. He liked to engage in a type of exercise that he called creeping. On the carpet of his office suite, he would crawl like an infant in order to develop what he believed to be a form of higher brain function. He was convinced that he could live forever, and believed that he possessed a
1: sixth sense. The book uses Hunt and others as examples of the Bircher style. When confronted with the fact that nine of ten Americans didn't want to leave the UN, for example, the idea of leaving the UN being a Bircher obsession, Hunt would respond with an endless barrage of facts that weren't,
0: you know, factual. Miller explains. Ultra-conservatives compiled evidence of treason through a process of examining decisions made by American policymakers and presupposing that errors in judgment were conscious, intentional, and sinister. They combined this preoccupation with heaping up facts with a predilection for leaping to dubious conclusions.
2: This heaping up facts is pure Welsh. The Eisenhower letter had more than a 100 pages of footnotes, in spite of the fact that it was gibbering nonsense.
1: And speaking of nonsense, there are so many great little quotes about Dallas's craziest citizens at the time that we're just going to provide them here with no other commentary. For example, after the assassination, some insisted that
0: Kennedy was going to rise from the grave and become the Antichrist. You want more? Try this. Ultra-conservatives detested particular institutional and cultural manifestations of Dallas's increasing urbanity, including the new emphasis on mental health, dental health, and modern art. More, I hear you shouting? Okay. One ultra conservative was horrified to hear another, Mrs. Ernest B. Foote, declare that Dallas papers supported Eisenhower because the papers were owned by Jews, and that Eisenhower himself was a Swedish Jew. Dana, can you give us a quick rendition of the famous Swedish Jew accent?
2: That's a hard pass.
0: Alas. Still more? Some wanted removal or expurgation of textbooks that referred favorably to integration, the United Nations, Or the folk musician, Pete Seeger. So
1: this is all in good fun, but it's important to remind you here that in spite of all the vitriol and heated rhetoric that originated with the Birchers and their allies around Dallas, JFK was shot by a dipshit who, if anything, would have to be considered a man of the left. That is, dedicated commie and super-asshole Lee Harvey Oswald.
2: Yes, he was. No No grassy knoll. No train hobos. No CIA plot. Three shots. Book depository. No bigger conspiracy. Consult JFK episode for three and a half hours of proof.
1: This was a real shock to everyone who understandably had assumed that if JFK was shot in Dallas, it would have to be a right-winger who did it.
2: Again, Robert Welch never encouraged violence, but the same cannot be said for many of his fellow travelers.
1: But of course, the political valence of the hateful and pro violent sentiment in a place doesn't matter as much as does the black cloud zeitgeist itself. Miller quotes contemporary articles to this effect, with Fortune labeling the city hate capital of the nation, and suggesting that schoolchildren steeped in extremism cheered the
0: president's death. Another newspaper noted, Mr. Kennedy prepared a speech which reminded the people of Dallas that America's leadership must be guided by the lights of learning and reason. Dallas's answer, even before the speech was delivered, was to shoot John F. Kennedy.
1: So you might assume that, in the wake of Kennedy's assassination, and the fact that everyone assumed a Bircher had done it, that the society might have taken a long, hard look in the mirror and decided to tone down the world-ending conspiracy talk? Now you listen to this show, so you would not assume that. And sure enough, here are some quotes from an article in a Birch Society publication three months after the president's murder.
4: Professor Oliver argued that the maxim, De mortuis nil nisi bonum, speak no ill of the dead, Was a taboo for barbarians who indulge in tribal howling and gashing of cheeks and breast whenever a big chief dies or an eclipse portends the end of the world. No one paid such regard for Adolf Hitler, and he was certainly as defunct as Jack, and therefore presumably as much entitled to post mortem consideration, Oliver observed. Rational men will understand that far from sobbing over the deceased or lying to placate his vengeful ghost, it behooves us to speak of him with complete candor and historical objectivity. Jack was not sanctified by a bullet, he continued, before laying bare just what kind of historical assessment he believed such candor and objectivity should produce in great detail.
1: As you can imagine, the article only got more insulting from there. And of course, all of this was accompanied by some of that good old racist religion. One of my best friends growing up had a mom who, though she was welcoming to all of his friends regardless of race, firmly believed the same thing that Dallas ultra-conservatives of the 60s maintained. Specifically, that black people were the descendants of Ham, the son of Noah who was cursed for seeing his father's nakedness after Noah got drunk in a post-flood celebration and passed out. This curse, it is said, darkened African skin to indicate their cursed status, which also required them to be servants of the other races.
2: Seriously, where the fuck did you grow up, Jesuit?
1: The Deep South, where time doesn't move forward at the same speed, unfortunately, Unicorn? To quote the book again,
0: The biblical literalism of the ultra-conservatives went hand-in-hand with conspiracy, since in their minds, the greatest conspiracy of all was Satan's ongoing battle against Christianity. And one of the most important promoters of the eschatological
1: version of the battle between the free world and communism was Dallas radio host and biblical literalist Dan Smoot who, per Miller, saw the Cold War as merely an expression in the material world of the great spiritual struggle between, quote, the Christian forces of freedom and the atheistic forces of slavery. Eventually, Smoot's view of the conspiracy, that it was bigger and farther reaching than simply the struggle against communism, ended up heavily influencing Welch's evolving views.
3: Dan Smoot worked for H.L. Hunt. He had his own show, The Dan Smoot Report, And Smoot argued that the real purpose of Cold War politics was to contain rather than defeat communism. And that the Council on Foreign Relations, Smoot argued that CFR members wanted a one-world socialist system and sought the same aim as that of international communism. The CFR, Smoot concluded, was Washington's invisible government. Smoot would expound on this theory in his 1962 book, The Invisible Government. The book took a deep dive into the secret history of the Council on Foreign Relations. According to Smoot, the United States couldn't become a province in a one-world socialist system unless the American economy was first socialized, which it was through two wars. And through this socialization, which was well underway, a secret cabal of planners within the government intended to merge the political, social, economic, even cultural systems of the Soviet Union and the United States. I mean, it's all ridiculous, but there it is. These wild claims are going to influence and revolutionize anti-communist conspiracy theory. They no longer present the merger as a communist plot. Rather, Smoot said, a nefarious band of Globalists and internationalists were striking at the very heart of American sovereignty through the CFR. Smoot's contribution was an important development in American conspiracy theory, not only in the 20th century, but as it turned out, in the 21st. The invisible government was the first anti communist conspiracy theory that targeted politically connected globalists without actually calling them communists. Americans were no longer completely buying into the idea of a monolithic communist conspiracy, though they were seeing conspiracies play out in their daily lives. So Smoot reinvigorates conspiracy for an age when conspiracies seem to be everywhere. And Welch is deeply influenced by Smoot. In 1963, he rewrites the Eisenhower letter. And he removes references to Eisenhower being a communist. And he calls Eisenhower a globalist and a member of the Eastern establishment. In many ways, you see the same thing going on with QAnon. We have today the folks who are running as QAnon candidates losing elections. They're not winning their primaries, but the Republican Party is taking a version of Of the QAnon conspiracy theory, and they're lightening it up. They're using words like grooming, and they're using words like deep state, much like Dan Smoot did. That is a much more effective way of getting folks who are associated with the ideas of QAnon.
1: As the 70s dawned, the number of hardcore card-carrying birchers steadily declined. More and more Americans saw them as dangerous fringe actors. Welch took a new approach. Impeach Warren was a thing of the past.
2: Because Warren retired in 69. It had nothing to do with the JBS campaign.
1: True, but Welch still thought he saw in that effort the seed of the JBS's future.
3: After the Goldwater campaign, the John Birch Society was in trouble. The John Birch Society had become a joke, and it was impossible to get people to join the society. So he changed tactics much in the way that Richard Nixon changed tactics. He embraced single-issue campaigns through ad hoc committees. He would oppose abortion on demand as an issue. He was an anti-ERA proponent. These ad hoc committees were able to capture a large swath of folks who were turned off by the John Birch Society, but wanted to participate in the single-issue campaigns which built the Reagan revolution.
1: So the closing decades of Welch's life were a joyful crusade to defeat everything from expansions of civil rights, to expansions of abortion rights, to expansions of women's rights.
2: For a guy who loved freedom, he, he wasn't real big on rights,
1: was he? It is a bit of a conundrum, yes. And of course, he made it to the 1980s, when conservative poster boy Ronald Reagan became president, to the shock of pretty much the whole liberal establishment. You would think this would have been a delight to Welch, but wouldn't you know it, he had already decided decades before that Reagan wasn't a real conservative because of various compromise laws he signed during his time as California governor. Of course, inevitably, time came for Welch,
3: as it will for all of us. He had a stroke in 1983. He had dedicated all his money to the John Birch Society. His wife had to sell the home because they just didn't have any money. During the later years in the 1970s, despite the popularity of the ad hoc committees, the John Birch Society is being run by a group of second raters and even third raiders. And so the society begins to decline.
1: The John Birch Society did indeed decline in the wake of its founder's death, but as Miller noted at the beginning of the book, Welch clearly left a major imprint on the world. As I hope we've demonstrated, the John Birch Society's worldview, that is, Welch's worldview, has been incredibly influential on the conspiracy landscape in which we find ourselves today. And so, as we finish our time with the man we've come to think of as QAnon's grandpa, we have one more fascinating, Bircher-adjacent, mid-century topic to cover
2: and that is our precious bodily fluids. Wait, what?